So one of my life mantras, because I am very kind of focused on the present moment, is follow the fun. And so if something feels like an unnecessary struggle, I first inquire, like, why is this a struggle? And then I might do something about it. You're listening to the Elevate Podcast, and I'm your host, Robert Glazer. Join me as I talk to world-class performers about how they build their capacity and reach greater heights in leadership, business, and life, and how you can do the same. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. Our quote for today is from Socrates, an unexamined life is not worth living. My guest today, Kay He, has taken this lesson to heart. He's the founder and author of Rad Reads, a popular blog about examining our life-changing relationship with time, work, money, and ourselves. And he's been called the Oprah for Millennials by CNN, and his work has been featured in TEDx, Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg, and more. Kay, uh, welcome to the podcast. I'm excited to have you. Robert, thank you. The pleasure is mine. It is great to be here. Yeah, it's been a while. We've I, I feel like we've lived intersecting worlds with our newsletters. I've been hearing about yours for years. And I know you I mean you have an interesting origin story. Um, so, for lack of a better word, yeah, you started 15 years in Wall Street. So, what? Why'd you go to Wall Street, and then why'd you leave? All right. So the the origin story, and as you as you describe, my my adult life has been a tale of two cities. You know, it was the best of times, and it was the worst of times. But um, yeah, so I'm I'm a recovering Wall Street person. And I I think that to tell the origin story, I think you have to take a, a little step back. And the, the first step back goes back to teenage K. Teenage K grew up in New York City, super skinny, nerdy, kind of socially awkward um, kid, child of first generation immigrants. And I kind of always ask myself, like, how can I be cool? I want to be cool. I think many 13-year-olds probably ask themselves that. I was not on the fortunate side of that line. And so, you know, it wasn't going to come from just like my style, my friends, my girlfriend, whatever at that time. So I was like, what will that be? And for me, I had one secret superpower is that I could work my butt off. And I was, I wouldn't say so, smart, so you, so you found, you found the place that, that rewards that more than anything. <laughs> exactly. I mean, yeah. to, to be totally blunt. I found that I, I, I used like intellect to teach myself entrepreneurship, started making web pages in my bedroom when I was a teenager, uh, learned how to invest, got into a good college. And then I was like, okay, I know how that kid, that 13 year old kid is finally going to be accepted and loved. And that's going to be through status and power and money, which come with money. And so I kind of got on the wall street escalator, elevator, whatever you want to call it. And did that for 15 years till um, till I had what I hope is a, a third of a life crisis, which had me reevaluate many things. Yeah. <laughs> and what what caused that? What was the impetus for it? I think that I talk about this often. It's kind of it's the when then trap, yeah. which is kind of this conditional happiness. Others might refer to it as the arrival fallacy. But it was always like, when I get X, then I'll feel happy. And yep. so, you know, as a kid, it was like, when I get Jordans or when I get a starter jacket, and then it was like, when I get into Yale, and once I got into Yale, I was like, when I get that first job, and when I get that first job is when I get, you know, my own, I don't have to live with roommates and a flat screen TV and a, you know, a fancy watch and all that. I was always kind of chasing that carrot since I was a teenager. It's achievement oriented. Yeah. Yeah. I was, yeah. 
I think what I really, I think I wanted two things. I wanted acceptance or to say it more bluntly, I wanted to, to know that I was loved and I wanted people to recognize me. Like I wanted people to, to respect me. And I think deep inside, I thought that that would lead to happiness, right? I wanted to be at peace. And so I just kept doing that. And the stakes, the highs kept getting higher objectively. You know, I bought an apartment in New York and, yeah. you know, all that stuff. I got married and, you know, we had kids and all that. You know, those aren't achievement markers, but the, the life plan went, went as according. But with every high, now I'm not talking about getting married and having kids. I'm talking about buying stuff and, or getting recognized. With every high, the highs were shorter. And then the drops were more precipitous, right? So that first time you kind of go in and, and you saved your money to buy something you really wanted, you're, you're happy for months. 10 years later, you get that bonus and you're like, oh, I'm going to buy a studio apartment. And, and you do it and you're like, oh, that was cool. What's the next thing? What's the it's next? It's thing? almost like What's an it? economic, it's almost like the, you know, the diminishing returns of, of achievement or something like that. Oh, for sure. Because I think what you achievement, right? You no, know, and the rat the, the motto for rat reads is come for the productivity, stay for the existential. So yeah. we can't talk about career advancement without getting deeply philosophical. Yeah. But there's a fundamental question. I didn't know I was reckoning with it at that time. Now it's crystal clear to me. And the question was, who am I? without achievement. Like my whole self-worth was predicated on achievement and achievement is a never ending ladder, right? Or it feels like a never ending ladder. And so you never feel at home. Well, as you said, the more you go, the less dopamine you get. Ryan Holiday has written about this a lot. He And he talked about, you know, he had five books before he made the New York Times bestseller list. It's just every, you know, everyone's thing. And he got the call while he was mowing his lawn and he was like, okay. I made it like he did. There was no, there was no euphoria. Like it, it, it no. was, it was kind of done and okay. What's the next one? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And I think there's a, you hit a very scary point where you're like, well, have I been playing the wrong game this whole time? Yeah. Because we're taught, I mean, so many of us, your listeners, my readers, my college peers, my friends on wall street, we're all taught that that's, that's it. But then the, you know, if you get to taste it and you're like, that's not it. And like, what if this was never it? I mean, that is the heart of a midlife crisis, right? Yeah, exactly. So did you have your, your Jerry Maguire moment? Like, was it a drop the mic walkout or was it just sort of a, uh, you just made a slow decision and, and did you leave without knowing what you were going to do next? So it, um, it was building. I think that, you know, one of the good things about working on Wall Street that I always share with other creators is that you get overpaid. <laughs> and now now so, $180,000 out of, out of college, right? Yeah. The, and yeah. Uh, you probably start losing your hair uh, by the time you're 23 from lack of sleep <laughs> and anxiety. But uh, I had a buffer. I had a savings buffer. And I knew I had cultivated a bunch of little side projects. And so after work, I would rush home and I'd organize social events. I would build a CRM using no-code tools. I would make a blog anonymously on music. So I had all these little projects and none of them were businesses. But what they showed me was, okay, if you can move the needle, and these projects had traction, not, not like financial traction, but like people like them. Yeah. If you could move the needle on one to two hours of work 
a night, you know, when you're exhausted or at the crack of dawn, uh, imagine what you could do if you had all the time in the world. Right. And so what I did was I, I call it, I made an angel investment in myself. I took a chunk of my savings with my wife's permission, or we discussed it. And I said, this is an investment in K figuring out what's next. And, and like an angel investment, you could have, you have a very high chance of it going to zero. Yeah. And a teeny weeny weeny chance of it being like, you know, 10,000 X. Except, except your board of directors, you know, was a little more understanding. Exactly. Yes. Uh, and so I put that money aside and I was like, I'm going to try things until that money runs out. And if it runs out, I'll admit that I was wrong. I'll admit that I wasn't cut out to be an entrepreneur and I'll go get a job. Oh, so it was a dollar ramp, not a time ramp. Well, I, I could loosely translate yeah, yeah. the dollars. It was roughly like, depending on how much money we spent, it was roughly between like one and two years. Okay. So what'd you do? What were some of your experiments? Uh, traveled for four months. Yeah. <laughs> um, the biggest one was a continuation was my Brad Reads newsletter. So that started off, you know, six and a half years ago as a BCC email on Gmail. That's like, hey, I find these articles cool. So it started. So you just started one week and you said you forwarded articles to other people and you said you might find these interesting. Yeah. The guy okay. forwarded them all in one email. Yep. Okay. And I was, I was on vacation still working on Wall Street. And the infamous last words on the bottom. I have a lot of free time right now. I wonder when I'll have the time to do this again. Love K or see ya K. And so I was on vacation there and maybe 15 of the 38 people wrote back and said, this is incredible. I hope you send the next one again soon. Okay. Noted. So that was something I probably did that for the last three months while I was working on Wall Street. Uh, we traveled and I just continued to write the newsletter. And the cool thing about the newsletter is that it turned into this laboratory or petri dish for a lot of little tiny experiments. So one of them was I needed to call it something. So I had to think about like, what's a good name? Came up with Rad Reads, a good alliteration. Um, then I needed a homepage where people could go sign up. And so I bought the domain and like put my HTML skills to work. Then I was like, I, I, I could be a little bit of a better writer. And so I practiced writing the blurbs and really getting a consistent tone and a consistent voice. And I read some books on writing. Then I needed a logo and then I needed to pick colors and then I needed like formatting. And so then I needed to like, what happens when people Google rad reads? And so it just kind of like very, very organically, I guess you could say turn, spawn the early days of a digital business and all the kind of little ancillary pieces that come with it in something as simple as a newsletter. And was there any specific focus early on or was it just issues that you found interesting? So the interesting thing is that, and I know you speak to many kind of creator-led companies and entrepreneurs, yeah. it really kind of reflected kind of what I was thinking and what I was living. And so in the early days, I thought I was going to start uh, either go work at a very small startup like AI, fintech, uh, or maybe start a little investing fund. So it was very kind of oriented around kind of investing in tech. And then I was like, I don't want to do that. And then I kind of really leaned into like the solo creator economy. So it was like, you know, around that. And then, you know, I did some, we could talk about some of the consulting and coaching work I did around people's relationship with money, which is like, people are like, I want to do what you did, but I can't. I'm like, what do you mean you can't? They're like, let's talk about that. 
you know, what's that limiting belief that says that you can't. So if you look at ratteries, I could probably break down each year by a theme. Yeah. But the one common thread, if you zoom out, was it was about being a more productive person, not necessarily productivity, but a more productive person. Yeah. But it always had that existential lens. Like, why do I want to be more productive? Or why can't I be productive? Or why am I holding myself back? Or why am I self-sabotaging? So it always had that blend of like output and introspection. And it kind of looked at it through a bunch of different channels like money and work and time and business and entrepreneurship and leadership. And so how big did the newsletter grow? I actively um, call cold subscribers. Um, So right now it's like Mm -hmm. 27,000. But I've probably called 27,000 subscribers over the lifetime. So again, so it's 27,000. But we're quite proud of our 56% open rate. But it's made it into like the upper echelons of finance. And how how did it start? Uh, It it seems to have found a very high level home. Um, Is that just from your network or the type of people that it resonated with? And I assume then they're sharing it within their organization. Yeah, it it has. uh, My favorite story about Rad Reads is there's a few. uh, People will randomly come up to me in different countries. This happened three times. Be like, are you K from Rad Reads? So that's kind of cool. Uh, but but the other one is there's two dads. It is more men than women. We're trying to get that ratio better. Uh, two dads on a soccer field at 9 a.m. in New York City, kids soccer game. And they're both on their phones and they look over to one another uh, and they're both reading Rad Reads. Um, but we got lucky. We got two press hits like pretty early in our lifespan. And that really changed the game. I mean, uh, you know from talking to many entrepreneurs that more viewers does not translate into a better business model, but it definitely, it can help. And those were both completely organic. I mean, I'm too small to have a PR team or anything like that. Um, The thing was that it spoke to people that were kind of senior-ish across different industries. And those people, for lack of a better word, tend to have influence. Yeah. So that was not part of the business plan, but, you know, I was a, executive at a finance firm. So I was really writing from an executive's perspective to my executive peers in the early days. And because it connected, they would just forward it around. So one friend forwarded to the reporter and they're like, hey, this is kind of cool. You should interview him. That's how we got on Bloomberg. And you decided on what, Saturday mornings? I do Saturday mornings around. I'm not as uh, responsible as you are. (laughs) Uh, I'm scrambling still six years into it to write my essay. I start my essay on Saturday morning. So you said so, whatever you're writing the same day. Well, I blurb earlier in the week. Okay, got it. Got and my it. team helps me blurb, but the essay I, I sit down and start it on Saturday morning. Okay. I need that forcing function. So you can't go out until you get this done. Oh, not only that, but like I try to get it done by nine Pacific. So I'm up at like four thirty-five. Okay. It's an interesting force function. <laughs> Hence, maybe the burnout, right? <laughs> yeah. And when when was the decision of whether this was a business or a hobby? Like, you know, I assume you start, people start asking you, can I sponsor it? Or how did you think about that? I still think of it as a hobby sometimes, uh, but there were kind of two milestones. The first milestone was probably two years, 18 months into it, two years, a reader responded to an email and said, can you coach my executive team? 
And I was like, well, I'm, I'm not a coach. Yeah. And I was like, I can refer you to coach. He's like, no, no, no. We've been following. We like the way you think. And we think that you could help teach our executives how to be happy. I'm like, whoa, <laughs> yeah. that's not how it works. Cool. Sign me up. Where do I, you know, where's the check? Yeah. And so that was the first moment. And I think all entrepreneurs have this moment where they're like, whoa, people actually pay money for something that I create. How'd you price that one, by the way? I basically probably, probably way too low, right? Way <laughs> too low. Yeah. Um, I basically, I had my own coaches and I basically charged what my coaches charged me. Okay. So I did that for a while. I got some kind of speaking, like small speaking gigs in between, but that was kind of the revenue for a couple of years. Then um, fast forward, we really like in the past three years, two and a half years, pivoted into uh, an education company. Uh, and then we, have, we have a flagship product that's called Supercharger Productivity, which is a, a cohort-based live four-week course that we've run eight times in the past three years. And that course, start again, that course started off on just being tool-centric around a tool called Notion that you've probably heard about. Yeah. And then with time, it's evolved into this combination of three things. The how, which is like the tool, the why, which is why this even matters in the first place, and then what behaviors you need to change for this to all work. And that's kind of our 10K framework that we're, we've been building out. So now in the past two and a half years, we are solely, solely like 90% of our focus is around developing that course and getting students into it and servicing them um, after they take it. And so you have a team now that works on that with you? Yeah, we have a team uh, of five heavy time contractors. Got it. So one of the things that you've written about, which I think is interesting, is the misleading nature of financial independence. So mm. what, what do you think the most common misunderstanding is in your eyes? Is it that whole problem we were talking about earlier of you just always <laughs> want more? Yeah, yeah. So so I often, what I love about Radreads is taking a topic like fire or taking a topic like productivity and kind of peel like distilling it down to its juicy meaty parts of like your psyche right and so uh so fire for those of you who aren't familiar financial independence retire early it is this very methodical way of like just saving so aggressively at such a young age earning as much as you can so then you can retire early and my challenge with fire is uh, a few things the, the first is if you ask many people, I might ask you, I said, Robert, if your expenses were covered, you and your families and anyone that's dependent on you were covered for the next 30 years, I want you to give me an um, hour by hour <laughs> yeah. schedule. Like, give me an hour by hour accounting of how you'll spend the next year. I, that is I, a very hard question for maybe no, not, look, maybe not for I, you. I, I am sure you've seen this. And and like I say, this is the highest class problem that no one wants to talk about. But I, you know, we've both seen numerous people who have sold their business and financial independence and they go from 500 miles an hour to zero. And and there's a very high depression rate or just complete mm -hmm. like loss where it's like, okay, now now what? <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Well, it goes back to that central question that led to my midlife crisis or third of life crisis. Who am I without achievement? Yeah. Right. How can I find contentment in the mundane, the everydayness of life? 
And I think the thing with fire is that you, you really like you skewer yourself, right? Like you, they don't like that. I use this example, but it was in the wall street journal. Like the, one of the fire people, they won't, they won't buy vegetables. They go to like when there's the damaged vegetables and they give them away for free, like the supermarket, like that's how they get vegetables to save, you know, 30 bucks, 20 bucks. And so like you skewer yourself in the pursuit of delayed happiness, but you don't spend a single moment contemplating what that actually means. Right. It is the proverbial, you know, cart before the horse. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Two years ago, I bought a dual suspension mountain bike for the first time, and it pushed me to ride trails that I had never been willing to try before. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has exceptional capability that will have you seeing the possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. The Lexus GX comes with available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, best-in-class towing capacity, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. I've seen the new Lexus GX popping up all around my town, and not only does it have the capabilities to take you to new places on and off the road, but it's a great-looking car. The new Lexus GX is ready to raise the bar for you. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hey, Elevate listeners. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify is the partner you need to keep the cash register ringing for your e-commerce business. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading platforms. I advise a lot of companies in the e-commerce space and almost all of them have migrated to Shopify. And as a buyer, what I love about buying from Shopify enabled sites is that they already know who I am and I don't have to create a new account or enter all my payment info the ShopPay service makes it faster and easier to buy, which surely helps with conversions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., and Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com elevate, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com elevate now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash elevate i have always said that i really don't have much jealousy but the only people that i'm jealous of are someone like a professional golfer right because they they win the tournament and three million dollars on sunday and what would they want to go do on monday you know Mm -hmm. for free the same thing right Mm -hmm. so so it seems like the thing with that movement sort of separates making money you know, with enjoying yourself when I'm sure you and I have both seen the people who figure out how to do those things simultaneously are like, look, I don't need to stop working. I I like what I do. (laughs) Yeah. And I'll tell you, like my day, I run a business. It's a good business. Um, We have, we mandate 30 hour work weeks. I have no meetings until noon Pacific. Most of our business on the East coast. Yeah. Cause I'm just watching the, the waves. I'm surfer. I've got this text chain with like 20 surfing friends. And we're like, how's the wind? How's the waves going 15 minutes going? So I leave the entire chunk open until 12 so that I can hit the surf for two hours at the perfect time. And then I go do my work. Some people might say, you can't do that. You're an entrepreneur. I'm like, 
I'm an entrepreneur and I'm doing it. Sure, I've made some choices. I could probably make more money if I worked from nine to twelve in the morning. Right. And people are deciding to- that after the pandemic, they're really rethinking a lot of that stuff. I meant so we totally. skipped over this. So what was your what was your existential answer to that question of how who am I without achievement? Mm. So I can give you the, the, cliff, a, the cliff notes. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well, no, it's actually it's a very complicated question because there's an answer that you can give with your rational mind. And then there's an answer that is like a felt sense that you actually right. can't use words to describe, but I, I can try. Um, I think the the answer, who am I without achievement, really comes from uh, my definition of love. And love is the fullness of presence, right? So I always say, when I'm with you, I'm with you right now, Robert. I'm with you 120%. I'm not thinking about a single other thing I have to do. I'm not thinking about any commitments. I'm not um, wishing that you know I had said something differently. I'm with you 120%. And so to me, happiness is the ability to be um, fully present at every single moment of your life, which basically means that the chatter, we all have chatter. You're not doing this faster, slower, more or less. You suck. You're great. You're, you know, it means that you distill that chatter to nothing. And is that the antithesis of how you would have described yourself beforehand? Oh my God. I mean, I think the chatter, I, I, think that I was defined by my thoughts. Yeah. Right. And it doesn't mean thoughts are bad, but thoughts are not who we are. I mean, that's a, that's a very, those thoughts were all future oriented. I'm guessing not present future or past. Yeah. Right. And uh, Dan Harris has this great quote with one foot in the future and one foot in the past, you're urinating on the present. (laughs) I've heard different versions of the same thing, but yes, that is the most colorful. Yeah. (laughs) So so to me, happiness is, am I truly at peace where there's no, I, this is very, this is very influenced by Buddhism. Like there is no craving. There's no desire. There's no desire for anything else other than that present moment through joy and through suffering and pain. Right. And that's why I say that there's. So uh, even if you're talking to me and I am the most at a party, I'm the most boring person in the world saying things that are terribly offending you. Like mm-hmm. you're, you're not thinking about getting past that conversation. You've come to a place of sort of just contentment with it. Well, well, that there in that example, um, there would be presence, right? And there would be compassion. There would be like I would not judge the. I would try to not judge the person. Yes, I'm not well, saying I, I'm able yeah. to, but I would try. <laughs> yeah, and then I would kindly, I would respectfully just remove myself from the conversation without l- lingering judgment and without lingering regret. And I think you could go a step further. Again, this is taught by Buddhism is that the person that is so toxic is usually the one suffering the most Yeah, internally. And yeah. so if you can just touch that, you know, if you can extend a compassionate inner energy hand, whatever to them, again, it doesn't mean to just suffer the fool for the entire hour, but you kind of have that and then you just you move on, you know, like screw that person. I can't believe I wasted all that time. Just move on. Yeah, yeah. And you go on with your life. I always say, like, uh, you know, and and particularly, you can imagine this during COVID. I think so many more people ascribe, you know, they don't ascribe as much in an event to what they control and what they don't control, right? So mm-hmm. you and I get in a car crash, you know, in the morning, and it's in the middle of COVID, 
And, and I'm like, oh my God, kids, just this guy, like he just, and I go around all day and I'm angry and I get into fights with people. And then, and then you're just much more enlightened and you're like, oh man, all the bad stuff going on in the world. Like I got into a car crash, like insurance covers it. And you go have a great interview with someone. And we both actually experienced the same thing that we didn't control. There's one reality. <laughs> there, there is, but there was a lot of, I, I think we ascribe like this, you know, thing that happened to us, like we put. 75% of it in, in that shouldn't be in the, you know, the, the, the bucket of, we had no control over it because it follows, it goes into what happened after the actual event. Mm-hmm. I know. I, absolutely. And I think that's where, that's where it all comes back to the mind, right? So much of these stories, right? This person is me and this person's an idiot. I'm going to be broke because of the accident. I'm like, so much of that. They're just, it's just noise. Yeah. And I think the true happiness is actually like melting that noise away. Now, people often hear that and they're like, well, you're just going to sit under a banyan tree for the rest of your life. No, like I'm going to surf and I'm going to build a company, but I'm not going to be so attached to every outcome that comes with those things. Yeah. There's going to be a much more fluid, like uh, e- easy, right? Like I want these things to be easy. And whenever there's struggle, I'm like, I don't run from struggle but I question is a struggle fabricated. Yeah, no, that's fair. And, and again, I mean, there's totally different degrees of where again, the stress, I mean, I have a mentor who always says like, he does a speech and he says, go get me a can of stress. I'll give you $10,000. Right. <laughs> I mean, it is a, it is a physiological reaction, but for some people it happens when they don't have enough food or a pace of sleep. And for other people, when their Butler, you know, told them that they're going to be late to work that day. <laughs> Yeah. And and so, you know, objectively different situations, same physiological response, right? It, it is it comes sort of from the fight or flight mechanism. Absolutely, and I I think and without right, I would assume that our audiences um, are not um, struggling to put food on the table and struggling for shelter. And obviously, you know, there there is a Mas- Maslowian hierarchy to all that. But when you're in the world of knowledge workers. Yeah. Right. That the fight or flight is like the red slack dot. It's not. It's what the, you're putting like, in your Will head. my yeah. kids eat tonight? Yeah. I, I I saw this. Look, I think you know you saw clearly during the last year in COVID, you had people who lost their jobs, had health concerns, weren't sure where they were going to sleep, and then you saw other people that still had those things, but they were pick your poison, far left, far right. <laughs> you know, we're watching mm-hmm. that news. You know, 24 hours a day. And going through almost the the trauma of it without without actually the the event itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. And so I, I think that if you juxtapose like teenage kid was just like I'm not enough, I'm not safe, I'm not loved. Like I, I think part of that I did come from a first generation family of immigrants, so yeah. my parents didn't have much, but I had a lot. And then a young adult K was like. Who am I? Who am I? Who am I? I could do better. I could be more. I could be, you know, I could be doing this better. People could see me. And and please don't take away from this that I'm like a super Zen person who doesn't, yeah. you know, have their kids and fight with their wife. I do, I do all of those things. I need to drink to calm down. Like I do all of those things. Um, but I do have this awareness that like you're telling yourself stories, dude. Like I've let go of the firm grip that those stories used to have on like all of my actions. And those stories have caused me to have like, like a lot of bunch of health issues. Like, like if you carry those stories for a long time, it can, I've seen it impact your health. It's impacted my health. 
yeah, there, there's a lot of different ways to to look at it. And again, we have to decide what it is that we you know want to control and and what it is that we don't want to control. And and realizing that you know some of that stuff is a is a choice, um, and it's yeah. a choice of whether it becomes a a trigger for it or something that we look look the other way. Um, and mm-hmm. and but as you said, like look, you have these things; they're all they're all real, right? And none of us yeah. are pretending that we're superhuman. But the key thing is that I think the ability to understand or believe you're wrong or or question a narrative, you know, that you're being told. And this is Adam Grant used this term uh, like challenge network. I think right now with, with with social media, we have these confirmation bias networks who just, you know, are willing either digitally or analog to repeat back all the same things and echo them to us versus like, who's going to tell you something otherwise? So I, I was talking to one of these people in my life who is a challenge person. And mm-hmm. uh, I was explaining something I went on about nine months ago and, and, and he <laughs> looks at me on a Zoom call and he goes, that's a great story that you've told yourself. Yeah. I just don't think it's true. And I thought about it for like five or six hours after after he said that. And and I went back to him. I was like, yeah, you're right. I had totally concocted this narrative and I got myself to believe it. And mm-hmm. But again, I have to, someone like that who I'm willing to let say that, I think there's such a, particularly today, mm-hmm. there's such a like, not even a desire to totally. listen to anything out of your your spectrum. And I would compliment that with some kind of stillness practice where we're just bombarded with inputs, messages, Slack, news, music, content, Netflix, everything. And to be able, like when you strip away all of that noise and, and my personal practice is meditation, when you strip away that noise, these answers or these clues about oneself and one's limiting beliefs become way more clear. Like the the hardened edges of these stories start yeah. to dissolve. Yeah, and I think it, it, that's you know therapy, challenge networks, stillness, journaling. These are all these are all part of the. That's why in our courses we always teach the why, in addition to the how. Right, like yeah. what's like the bigger question here? I think it's really like when someone tells me something I didn't know or understand or whatever. Like I, I kind of think that's cool. Like yeah. it, it, there's this. I think that the the problem these days is, and this is the struggle, a lot of people are portraying facts, opinions as facts, right? Mm-hmm. And so you might be like, oh, that's really interesting. That totally yeah. rocks like my analysis on something, but I kind of have to go check whether that's mm-hmm. whether that's true first, um, yeah. because that's happened to me so many times where someone has said, I'm like, really? Like, I'm like, I go do some searching. I'm like, it's totally not true. Uh, you know, <laughs> objectively, like, yeah. it, it, and so that is the struggle where we are today. You know, I, totally. I, I think the the alternative facts phrase has destroyed a lot of, a lot of credibility. Yeah, I agree. So one of the things um, you've talked about, I know you're also a big believer in the, in the 80, 20 rule, um, mm-hmm. this concept of the 10 K per hour work. Can you, yeah. can you explain, explain what that is? Oh, I'm glad you asked. So yes, the $10,000 per hour work is a super simple way to basically fast track what's important to you. And so it's a matrix. Uh, I think you've had Kim Scott uh, on your podcast, you know, a two by two matrix, like the radical candor matrix. And to say quite simply, on one axis, you have skill, low skill, high skill. On the other axis, you have low leverage, high leverage. And leverage is kind of a word that some people, it's a finance word, but some people get tripped up about it. But the simplest question for me is how, how I define leverage is 
when my goals keep happening while I'm surfing, that's leverage. Like, does my business keep growing? Are sales calls happening? Is content being written? The answer is no on that one. But, um, you know, are we generating revenue? Are we generating profits while I'm not involved in it while I'm doing something else? And so that's a matrix. And then you have these buckets, 10, 100,000, 10K. And I'll go through each of them super quickly. $10 work is watching Netflix and YouTube. Just don't do it. It's responding. It's inbox zero. It's all that stuff. Like you need to do some of it, right? Like we all need to do like maintenance stuff. $100 work is kind of the, it's like the bait and switch. It's when you think you're doing something, le- you know, you're leveraging something low skill. And yeah. the classic example of $100 work is just like the productivity lore, text expanders, superhuman, keyboard snippets, GTD, you know, all these Zettelkast and all that. Great. They're useful tools, but do you think Jeff these, Bezos? These are all these are all the hack things, basically. Yeah, these that, are yeah. the hacks. Yeah, because they do they incrementally make you better, right? Like a text, my text expander saves me like seven hours a year. Yeah. Great, yeah. but seven hours a year is not changing the course of my life or my business, so it's a false promise. And then we get to thousand dollar work, and that's kind of like that's the good life. Thousand dollar work is you have a skill, a unique skill. You got it in college. You have it from years of work experience. You're a lawyer. You're a coder. You're a podcaster. And you get paid a wage, a high wage for that skill. That's a great, that's where most people stop. The problem with $1,000 work or that what's missing with $1,000 work is if you want to take a year off, you have no leverage. Yeah. If you have 10 trainers doing that, then you have $10,000 work, right? Exactly. Yeah. So then 10K work, I mean, the most classic 10K example is manage, being a great manager. That is when you inject so much leverage. Nathan Berry, who connected us, founder yeah. of ConvertKit, he said, every week I have 80 employees work 40 hours. That's 32,000 hours of work are being moved every week by my team. The most important thing I can do is to ensure that those 32,000 hours are moving in the right direction. Right. That epitomizes what 10K work is. Now it can be it can be a lot of things, right? It can be having an audience, right? I can launch new products off of an audience. It could be having a recognizable framework like 10K work where people people start are saying 10K work like like it's a thing, right? Um, like they're using it, they're writing blog posts about it. They're unaffiliated with me. Like that's leverage, right? That is marketing leverage or audience development leverage. So there's all these different ways. A SaaS company has very high leverage, right? Because it costs you zero to make the next product or close to zero. Yeah. So you have product leverage. So there's all these different ways to think about uh, leverage. And then there is, there's a way, you know, there's the, there's like a meta 10K work, which is like figuring out what your own 10K work is. Right. Right. And so we really try to, I think the problem is that people, the, the people that we that are the read us are stuck at a thousand and they know that there's there's more and they're kind of doing it all and they just like it's a thousand is like the land of grinded out. Yeah. Like oh, I just worked two extra hours to get this thing over the hump. And then you've burnt out. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and free. LinkedIn isn't just a job board. It helps you identify and hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. 
Case in point, last year I asked the CEO of a major ski resort how he got his job, and he told me that he saw it on LinkedIn and decided to apply. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. The team at LinkedIn is also constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process easier and quicker. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash practical. That's linkedin.com slash practical to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Yeah, I've tried to have this discussion with my daughter. She's getting ready to go to college and, you know, there are various amounts of consultants and, you know, we're sort of transparent about what they cost, the range. Like, oh, like person that much an hour. And we're like, but they're selling time. There's a limit, mm-hmm. right? I, you know, try to explain that principle. Like it's a lot of money. You have to decide whether you want to work 30, 60, hundred hours, right? Cause they're, mm-hmm. they're, they're buying you. So yeah, that we, I try to just at least expose my kids to that, that understanding. Yeah. And, and the, the beautiful thing about 10K work is, you know, there's something that's a hundred, a thousand times more impactful than the base unit. And that's yeah. the thing that we like. And you can apply that to habits. You can apply that to health. You can apply that to sleep, right? Like people go crazy about sleep, like hacks and aura rings and all that. Maybe stop drinking before bed. Yeah. <laughs> or go to bed or early. go to bed earlier. Or go to stop, bed the stop same watching time. TV on your electronics before right? bed. There, there's some like well-known, that, right. Yeah. The, the Wara ring, Wara ring is the classic hundred dollar trap. They're like, Oh, I'll, I'll throw this ring on and I'll get it out. And then I'll spend, sleep. and then I'll spend four hours in the morning obsessing about what my sleep patterns were last. Exactly. I, I frankly, like, I know when I get a good night's sleep and I don't yeah. like, it, it is not a, it, yeah. I don't need scientific analysis to know I woke up three times or I slept yeah. nine hours without moving. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But again, like a hundred that, that the lower part of the matrix is so seductive because it gives you the immediate dopamine. Yeah. The war ring gives you the, all the charts setting the same bedtime. There's no dopamine. Yeah. Cutting out it, interesting, negative dopamine. It, yeah. <laughs> interestingly, I feel a little differently about like the step thing because I actually have gotten some enlightenment to realize some of the days where I'm just moving stuff around the house or yard or whatever. I'm like, Oh, that was mm-hmm. like 10,000 steps. Like I had, yeah. like I, Oh, that's equivalent to walking. So I, it was actually, there, there was some behavior thing on that, but, totally, yeah. but on the sleep. Yeah. I, 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 I find the whole thing. If you, and again, if, it's not to say that war rings and step counts yeah. are bad, but they're not the thing that's going to deliver you that yeah. 10K outcome that you truly right. desire. And, and look, if, you, if we, we took a survey every day, I'm like, you know, okay, like, were you generally like healthy today? You could mm-hmm. probably answer, oh, yeah. I mean, I, yeah. I went and did this and that and biked and I went to Sweet Green. Or you could be like, no, you know what? I, Today I didn't get out of bed. Then I had McDonald's. Then I drank. Like mm-hmm. I, some of this is not a surprise. I know. Yeah, so, it, it, in fact, what you're saying is it does provides the dopamine that some people need to gamify it, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Or it's a dopamine that. Can, and that's why it's so dangerous because it's a dopamine that can actually steer you in the right direction, or it's the dopamine that that can convince you that you're done. Yeah, that you don't need to do anything else. I mean, people spend years tweaking productivity systems and they're like what's the most important question you should be asking about your business no idea <laughs> like you haven't thought about that but you have the perfect productivity system like yeah. how do you explain that disconnect to me so 
you know, this is an interesting meta discussion. That's what I wanted to sort of save this. So you are, you've been doing this thing. It has become a habit. You've been doing it for seven years until this summer. Like what led to, I, cause we talked about this before the show. I've had the same yeah. thing around. If I take a break, I, I, there are weeks when I have not wanted to do it. And there are weeks when I've done a recap and I'm like, my fear is like, I'll lose the momentum. What made you stop? And how is, are you coming back? And how has yeah. it, it been? So one of my life mantras, because I am very kind of focused on the present moment, is follow the fun. And so if something feels like an unnecessary struggle, I first inquire, like, why is this a struggle? And then I might do something about it. I might, I might just let, like stop doing it. Uh, and I've designed my life-ish to like, I have a lot of agency. Like I don't have a boss, I, you know, I work remote, all that stuff. Yeah. It's not being fun. And for years, what was that? Was it the exhaustion of COVID or what, or is it just, or did it, was it not fun for a while? I think that the types of things I was writing became a little formulaic and the creativity kind of waned and it felt like just like almost like a box. I mean, my, I'm sure my listeners are, our readers are listening, but it felt a little bit like a box checking exercise. Mm -hmm. And I didn't bring that zest and vigor and creativity to it. I was just like checking the boxes. And part of it was just like, yeah, just, I mean, this is the second day of school. This is the second day in two years that no one has been in my house for more than four hours in two years. So, I mean, that was, that was part of the knowledge worker burnout too. And I, but I also think that I'm the kind of person that like, I need my creative challenges to like evolve with time. I think we all do, right? right. Yeah. And I think that this stopped being creatively challenging. And I kind of wanted to figure out what was the next creatively challenging thing and how the newsletter fits into that. And so I could give and you so a what, And so what, yeah, what was that first Saturday like when you didn't do it? Like, was oh there God, like withdrawal or was it weird or? Yeah, I, I started, <laughs> I like, fake wrote it like in the sense that I like like because I'm always taking notes yeah throughout the week so I kept like taking the notes and then I then I like stopped taking the notes and then I was thinking about oh I'm gonna write about like taking a break like I, it's the hyperactive like I just constantly needed to do something and then I just like forgot I'm like oh today's Saturday I just forgot that it was even a thing so so that's kind of where how it felt but but let me tell you it takes me about Two hours to put the articles together, two to three hours to write the essay. Yeah. So about five hours. Uh, and maybe like throw in an extra hour for like, you know, proofreading and checking stuff. Um, it's about six hours a week, which is not a lot, but it's also not, it's definitely not. It's a lot. It's a lot. I, it's more than people probably perceive. It's a newsletter. People think it's less. Yeah. And strangers think it's more. <laughs> um so now, you know, I'm coming back in two weeks. I do feel reinvigorated with like, I've got some great ideas. And I think I've realized a few things. One, the blurbing part, I'm actually going to have my team do it. And I'm going to be transparent with people and say like, I'm not writing these anymore. I'm, I'm only writing some of them. Uh, the essay is still quite fun because that is actually my creative expression. But yeah. the fact that I was forcing myself to do it every Saturday was that there were stretches where I just I just didn't feel like writing it. And so I'm going to give myself permission to not write the essay if I don't have anything to say. Hmm. And then 
the the interesting business thing that I learned, and this might be too inside baseball, so feel free to edit this or tell me to stop. But the, the interesting thing that I learned is the growth of the newsletter, it stayed exactly the same. Hmm. So a false story was that my business will stop growing if I stop writing every week. That's and, and categorically was there still wrong. because most of the traffic was to the old things. Is that yeah? So most of the yeah. traffic comes from SEO and YouTube videos, yeah. like the, the new subscribers, and the newsletter readers are just happy current subscribers. Hmm. So that led us to another realization that we have six years of awesome content that we can just basically what they call in the industry an evergreen newsletter, it's like almost like a fake newsletter. But we have so much good material that we've written that we can repurpose that and send all the new people into a series, like kind of like a greatest hit series yeah. for like, I mean, years we could do it. We don't, we wouldn't want to do it for years, but we might do it for a couple months or, right. or fill in the holes. So that, that was what, what we realized. And again, to your point, like I had convinced myself that I was putting my business at risk by taking a break. And what I realized is like, I definitely didn't hurt it. I mean, it, it could have grown it more presumably, but these insights, these are like 10K insights that I had. I'm like, oh, wait a minute. If the growth is not coming from writing each week, where's the growth coming from? Right. Like, I didn't even know that, right? And so then I can go double down there. Interesting. So yeah, that's, look, sometimes we have all these hypotheses that I always say that, mm -hmm. the, the, and particularly in marketing, people have all these attribution hypotheses and you can make, or you can do the elimination diet where you stop mm -hmm. something and you see, yeah. you see what happens. Yeah, yeah. All right, well, last question for you. And this can be singular yeah. or repeated, uh, but what's a personal or professional mistake that you've learned the most from? When, when something feels off, and this is like usually in relationship with other people, not addressing it. So you could think of like Kim Scott's radical candor, but oftentimes you might be in a, in a business deal and like something feels wrong or you don't want to, you don't want to like cross the chasm. You might not want to say something like always confront, like confronting things head on. And yeah. I, because by nature, I'm a people pleaser and I have like go back to 13 year old K. I really just want, I want people to like me. I'm afraid to hold my ground or to, or not even hold my ground, but to say like, I don't want to do this or this doesn't feel right to me or this doesn't feel fair to me. And so I kind of just like absorb it, absorb it, absorb it so that people keep liking me. Yeah. And then I pay this like explosive violent price later down the road. My answer would, one time someone asked me this question when I went on their podcast, my answer would be similar. I think yeah. you assume me, I just drive over it or ignore it. It'll get better. I've never had it get better. It only, no. the, the interaction becomes harder and worse yeah. Yeah. <laughs> every time. And then the next time you, you gotta, convince yourself yeah. like, well, maybe it'll go away. And you just repeat the cycle of violence. Yep. And you got it. And you also, I think this also comes from radical candors. You got to like address it right away. Yeah. Like you can't just like let it. Because it, right, it gets awkward because it goes, yeah. Okay. The thing that happened yesterday and then it becomes, well, okay. The thing that happened last week or the thing that happened two months ago, like, wait, wait, you've been holding on to that. And, like, yeah, yeah. 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 And then the stories start to take shape. Of, like, well, what really happened in these two months, two weeks or whatever. Yeah. So interesting. Well, I'm interested to to see what it looks like when it comes back. Uh, we'll, we'll soon. Okay, how can more people learn more about you and your work? Where should they go? 
Yeah. So uh, please head over. Thank you, Robert. It's been so fun. Um, and I'm glad we finally got to connect in person. Uh, and thank you, listeners. So head over to radreads.co. No M there. Drop in. We run We run everything through email. We've got this phenomenal like uh, 10K training email course when you sign up. That's something we built uh, during the break. Uh, and it really teaches you the whole framework it's free and then you get you'll be part of our our community and so that's really the place to go and then I'm most active on social uh, uh, Twitter if you just google k he k g space h y uh, you'll find my Twitter handle which is under my full full long first name Kemrid. all right well thank you so much for joining us today again glad we finally made it made it happen and caught you on a break so uh, that made it easier for you awesome thank you Robert all right, to our listeners, thanks for tuning in to the Elevate podcast today. We'll include links to Kay and his work on the detailed episode page at robertglazer.com. Huge favor to ask. If you enjoyed today's episode, uh, you enjoyed the podcast in general, I'd really appreciate if you could leave a review. It's the number one way that new users discover the show. If you're listening to Apple Podcasts, all you got to do is hit on the library icon, click on Elevate, scroll down on the bottom, and you can leave a rating and review. So thanks again for your support. Till next time, keep elevating. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.